Hello and welcome to my podcast, The Power of Audio, Science and AI, supported by Stockholm Music City. I am Jasmine Moradi, your host, and in each episode, I'll take you backstage to meet with some of the top audio, science and AI personalities in the world. I will interview entrepreneurs, authors, business experts and thought leaders to learn how and why they're so passionate and determined about what they do. I will give you the knowledge and the insight your business needs to succeed with your audio branding. My guest today is my friend, Dr. Bradley White. We met at the Neuromarketing World Forum Conference in Singapore 2018. His speech was about music and the consumer's mind optimizing music for video ads. I instantly got hooked and decided to pick his brain. Bradley Wise is one of the kind. He has 10 years of academic research experience focused on the psychology and neuroscience of music, including PhD research at McGill University and postdoctoral work at Harvard and University of California. On top of that, he has an MBA from the University of Oxford. And why I will say, all of this, a list of my top three universities. <laughs> Back when I met him, he was the director uh, of neuroscience at Nielsen, working in the field of consumer neuroscience, focusing on the contribution music has on advertising and branding by providing guidance on sonic branding. Let us not stop there. Bradley has more than 25 scientific publications, including 14 peer-reviewed articles. Best of all, music is his life. He is a saxophonist. Today, he is the chief science officer at WavePath, focusing on music in psychedelic therapy. In this episode, Bradley and I are going to discuss the ins and outs of the sonic branding and the contribution music has on video and radio ad performances. With that, Bradley, I welcome you and thank you so much for joining us. It's always lovely to talk to you whenever we connect. Well, thank you, Jasmine, and what a pleasure to join you here on your podcast. This is amazing. Yeah, where are you? Uh, where are you sitting right now? I am in San Francisco, California, uh, in the East Bay, a place called Marina Bay, Richmond. Uh, and I'm, I'm originally from California, actually, uh, Oakland and uh, in the suburbs. So it's, it's been a homecoming of sorts uh, to return here uh, after a number of years living elsewhere. Nice. And, and how are you doing in times like this? Well, oh, this is uh, a challenging time for all of us, isn't it? And in California, we've uh, had the forest fires as well, which has added another layer of uh, trouble, uh, even for those of us who are lucky enough not to have been in the midst of the blaze, uh, we still have been seeing its effect on air quality and uh, that's added another kind of uh, layer of claustrophobia to the overall experience uh, that we're going through, but uh, optimistic that, that we'll find a path forward and and keeping for keeping on with with work and doing things remotely and talking to people like you. Oh, that's so lovely. So do, you don't get that much time to go out then if you also have like the air from the fire and then the whole thing going out with the pandemic. 
Mm, well, it's uh, it's getting better now. Of course, the, the fire seasons are coming to a close, so the air is clearing, and I'm not too far away from the water here. There's a beautiful bay trail. Uh, I go out, and I can see the city across the bay from here and, and uh, get some exercise like we all need. Uh, so that is, that is happening more and more, uh, which, is, which is great. Yeah, and, and talking about the weather and, and, and sitting and traveling, I would say we met in Singapore, and uh, I must say that Singapore was one of my best trips in my life. I absolutely love the botanic uh, atmosphere, uh, the uh, amazing hotel views from the top, and my strongest memory from the conference was your saxophone performance. And also, when you were presenting and you were showing the Jaw film sound clip, when you were comparing the original soundtrack with the James Blonde song, You're Beautiful, and for me, I mean, I didn't ask the other ones, but it made it seem like the shark was in love with the protagonist, Martin Brody. And also from this conference, I do remember the breath taking view overlooking the marina bay when we had that networking drink and we all were dancing <laughs> um so what were your strongest memories and takeaways from the conference oh it, it was wonderful wasn't it to um get to meet all our our colleagues make new friends and uh, to see what people are doing at the cutting edge of consumer neuroscience uh, in addition, it was my first time to Singapore, uh, and seeing that city was was really exciting. I I was fascinated by a, a beautiful part of the the town that was uh, kind of uh, totally like India. It was like being in South India, walking into this area, and I had some really delicious uh, South Indian cuisine there. And uh, it's a it's a very interesting mix of cultures in Singapore and that plus the of course the the interest of the conference uh, made it a great trip for me as well and and we didn't just uh, connect uh, because of music research uh, you are also a true musician at heart I would say um, so I'm interesting to learn what was your early, like what was your earliest memories of music and the importance it has played in your life from when you were born until now. Mm. Yeah, so I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone. Uh, many of us have uh, powerful experiences with music throughout life. And uh, one that I remember, my earliest powerful experience happened when I was just in grade school. I was uh, maybe in first, second grade, somewhere in there and the, the class was gathered up uh, together. I don't remember the exact circumstances, but we were singing uh, a song together, a pop song. Um, and uh, it was Lean On Me, actually. Uh, and somehow I had this experience of uh, the boundaries between myself and everyone else dissolving. So I had a really interesting experience of losing a sense of self and becoming part of a larger organism of experience. And that, that was uh, fascinating to me. And basically since then, I feel like I've been uh, looking for that experience, um, finding ways to increase the probability of that kind of experience happening and, and trying to understand it from a neuroscience perspective.
And and how did you end up uh, playing the saxophone? Uh, so well, uh, I was fortunate that in uh, while while in grade school there was a program for kids to learn an instrument and. Uh, to be honest, I just don't. Re I remember I had an album of of uh, uh, Christmas songs played by a saxophone uh, player that that always fascinated me. So something about the the timbre of the instrument, something about the the way it sounded, uh, attracted me. So that's how I ended up picking up the saxophone and then just studying and uh, and and learning how to play. So if I would ask you now to pick it up. <laughs> and play for, for me and the audience a little bit? I would be happy to, to play something for you. Um, so, so I've been working on uh, learning a little bit of, of a tradition of music uh, in South India. It's called Carnatic music. Uh, it's a really beautiful tradition. It's, it's actually arguably the original music of, of Indian classical uh, from which Hindustani evolved in the north uh, of India. And uh, I'm kind of a, a beginner at this. Um, and so, so I'm studying with a, a teacher who happens to be one of the foremost proponents of, of, this, kind of, of this kind of music on the saxophone. And, and I, I play recitals with, with 10 year old and 12 year old kids and things like that. So, <laughs> It's, it's been a lot of fun though. So I think I'm gonna play a little piece. There's gonna be a tambura in the background. I'll just, I'll just play a segment of this. Uh, and this is uh, a song called Maraveri by uh, Shama Shastri, who is one of the, the great composers in this tradition. Uh, let me just rev this up here. So that's the tambura. Thank you. 
Wow, I could really also like see that you were enjoying it um, from, from, from looking at you when you were playing it. And, and therefore I would say through your lens, explain for us what is exactly music and why and how does it have such a profound effect uh, on the brain? Yeah, it's a wonderful question and, and uh, to a large extent a mystery but there have been some very interesting theories put forth, one by Robert Satori and colleagues, uh, looks at how the frontal lobes in the human brain have, have developed uh, more than our primate cousins and, and, and have these, uh, these connections with reward circuitry in the brain as well. So you have this potential for abstract thinking that's directly interacting with emotion. And this may be what allows music, which is ephemeral, abstract, non-material to have such uh, a powerful effect on, on people and to influence our lives in such a, a profound way. So, so what, what really happens in, 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 our, in, in our minds and bodies, uh, I would ask, and, and the little bit understanding that I have that I always try to tell people is that um, if, if it's like 75, 80%, we're made of water. And when you play something, um, you can see in the water that it vibrates, right? Is it somehow connected to that, that it's because that we're made of so much water that we can feel those vibes? Well, it, it's definitely, there's, there's plenty of interesting research looking at the tactile effects of of music indeed and and actually there are, there are people that actually compose for speakers that that send vibrations through your back uh, uh, through you know that are attached to you or or, or uh, kind of against your back um, so definitely there's there's sensation and then uh, it's it's quite possible that heavy rhythm bass uh, sounds actually move your vestibular system so they may actually create little uh, jolts in the vestibular system that mimic motion mm. and that may be one uh, driver for the experience of movement and maybe even the drive to move along with music. Uh, it's, it's more than that of course we have a, an extraordinarily complex auditory system it all starts with vibration, but how do you go from vibration to experience and, and emotional experience? And it, it, the vibrations interact with the eardrums, of course, and then they go through a, a process of being converted from physical vibrations into neural activity mm -hmm. via inner ear. There's this amazing system for decoding pitches and basically figuring out what's going on in the world and then translating that into neural activity. Oh, wow. Would, many layers of, of activity once it's, it reaches the brain. Wow. Would, would you say then, is, is this like the questions and the curiosity of wanting to know this in combination with that you play music? Like how did you end up in, 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 studying and, and, and working in neuroscience and especially focusing on, on music. Mm. Yeah, I, I think it, it uh, you know, like uh, many people, I 
I oscillated a bit around um, subjects that were of interest and until I found something that kind of fit the contours of my imagination uh, uh, as Malcolm Gladwell uh, has put it. I never heard him use that phrase, but uh, basically I, I really did um, always have a deep passion for music, uh, but also for science. And uh, when I first started undergrad at at MIT, actually, I spent my first year there. I was I was really focused on science, but I had this enormous pull towards music and wanting to immerse myself in music. I ended up uh, going to this uh, jazz program that I dreamed of going to at William Patterson University uh, and studying with David Dempsey and uh, so many uh, luminary figures in jazz um, before landing on something that kind of brought together those different passions of mine in the form of uh, music cognition, uh, understanding cognitive science and uh, trying to explore the experience of music from, from that perspective. Oh, wow. And, 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 and I mean, talking about music and, and science, that's how I ended up in what I'm doing too. And, and I have for the past, six plus years been advocating uh, about the importance and the power of music in, in branding. And um, I've also scientifically been able to confirm the powerful effect that music has on branding, sales, the customers and the staff store experience. Uh, now from the perspective of neuroscience and psychology of music, Walk us through how my results can be explained in terms of how music is connected to our emotions, memories, and associations. Sure, and and this was uh, like you uh, a, a really um, uh, primary focus for me in my work in consumer neuroscience at Nielsen Consumer Neuroscience, exploring how music uh, affects the potential for brands to grow, uh, how it, it can influence uh, video ad performance. But uh, you know, this power of music that we've been talking about a little bit, um, thinking about the cultural significance of music, it, it has these amazing, uh, these, these amazing attributes that allow the brain to really latch onto it. It's an amazing mnemonic device. So it's got all this structure, a structure in terms of rhythm, in terms of melody and harmony. And, and uh, if there are words, then there might be rhymes and other patterns in words and, and uh, the syllables and, and phonemes involved and so on. So you have all this structure and the brain being this um, prediction machine that is always trying to take into account what it already knows, identify patterns and, and anticipate what's coming next. Music is kind of this uh, catnip for the brain. It's uh, just fascinated by this and uh, looking for deviations from expectation and connecting meaning uh, with, what, uh, with what we're hearing. So, you know, of course, when we get to, to branding, you, you can just take this incredible vehicle for creating memories and associations and utilize it to um, deliver messages or, or build associations that that you'd like to develop for the brand yeah and and, and going back to the job uh, 
film sound clip comparison. I actually uh, myself always use the Shining trailer that is on YouTube. And for our listeners, I will add this uh, on my website uh, to watch for your own experience. Um, so at the conference, I remember that you said very strongly that music has, as you also mentioned now, a huge impact on video. Uh, and that music influences the video experiences and how it can change the perception uh, of the concept. It can also change the perception we get of the characters in the movie and also the, um, the relationship between the characters. So without a doubt, music sets the overall tone and mode. And we know that also that wrong music can have a tremendous uh, change to the storyline. And, and based on my research, it showed that misfit music decreased sales. And also misfit music made a luxury brand be perceived as less luxury for its customers. So let us discuss why brands are not investing the same amount of time and money in the music storyline as they are in the visual storyline when the chances of getting it wrong is so high and critical, especially that we have, you have, I have, you know, done scientifically world research showing that it has a significant potential power in improving either sales or ads, you know, and, and so on. What is your take on that? Yeah, it's a bit of an enigma indeed. Uh, and it's actually well known by uh, creative ad uh, teams that music plays a, a major role. I think there's something about the uh, you know, the uh, the potential for visuals to captivate us. Uh, actually, there's quite a bit more neural real estate devoted to visual processing than auditory processing as powerful as music is for us. So it's possible that just, you know, we can all get into a visual storyline and, and when it's easier of access and easier to talk about uh, music being something that affects us at an implicit level and is really cloaked in mystery. And when you hear a, a wonderful musician play, it's, it's kind of this, uh, this extraordinary, uh, happening that's unfold and then it's gone after it's done it's it's a mystery and it's a little hard to talk about whereas you can talk about storylines you can talk about colors you can like these are the things that that are just more tangible and so it ends up being the major focus uh, when it comes to discussions around developing ads uh, but I, I think people you know the, these researchers and marketers and they know about the power power of music but i think it's, it's a little harder to get at but these new tools and consumer neuroscience help out uh, with looking into those uh, non-conscious pathways. Yeah, can, can it be that music is just much more complex uh, to, to really put in words uh, what it feels like, right? And I think also music is very subjective um, and maybe also always taken a little bit for granted and, 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 um, yeah, I think maybe it's, 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 it's like that. It's so much easier to talk about pictures or create and paint stuff. But if you're not, everybody are really a musician. And, and, and me, myself, I always say I'm not a musician, but I can feel music. 
But if I have to go into detail of trying to understand music, then I feel like, oh no, that's not my area. Could, could that be something that music is so complex? I think you're on to something there, Jasmine. I, I really think that that's uh, the main issue here. It's it's complicated. It's uh, it's a world of expertise to understand you know, the language uh, of expressing major minor modes, you know, how to talk about you know, key signatures and and uh, tempo and metric uh, descriptions and so on. All of this requires a language that that people don't have generally. Uh, and that's in addition to your point about subjectivity. So it's, uh, we all bring to the table our own preferences and experiences, and they're pretty unique to us. And uh, one of the great things about music is that, that it, it, it accrues emotional associations. And there's some amazing work by people like Fred Barrett and Peter Janata looking at nostalgia in music. So these, you know, the, especially in our teenage years and plus or minus several years, you, you get this really powerful nostalgic effect of music. It accrues meaning, uh, but at the same time, that meaning may be unique to each of us. So how, how do we go outside of the subjective and look at a, an objective understanding of, of how a sequence of sounds will influence people kind of on average? That may be a little bit harder to do. Uh, for maybe maybe it needs some kind of translation, like trying to make it somehow easier to to take on. I mean, on, on, on some platforms, there's like 30 plus million tracks. How do you know which one to, to choose, right? How do you know that that is the emotional that it's, it's going to evoke? Uh, so maybe a, a, a translation can, can be something. But it's yeah. but but some brands are really good at it and i've studied uh, advertising and i've been in ken lyons many years ago and uh, i love the music that are picked in 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 some of the commercials is actually i would say the reason why you you remember a commercial and mm -hmm. from my experience i would say that coca-cola has worked really great uh with music in their commercials recently volvo actually has worked directly with musicians uh, and done powerful and especially overall in in car advertising it's really they're great at that bringing that wow you want to have that driving experience uh but also when i used to live in in, in london cadbury it's, it's a chocolate brand and they had two amazing commercials right remember one is the gorilla playing the drums wow <laughs> it, it, you don't even you know it's just like there's, there's no candy in it uh, and the second one is that when there's two children sitting next to each other and they're doing this eyebrow dancing uh and and it, it's just excellent uh, uh yeah showcase how great they are and i will i would again add them to to the website for for the audiences so uh, you've been through working a lot with agencies uh what would you say uh are great brands that you've uh, experienced that have been working great with music in the commercial arts and and why why are they so successful with that what do they do right right um i mean i i my uh ideal brands as far as music are concerned are for kind of more 
we might say boring reasons. It's not that that ad was super memorable and it had music. It's the brands that are using music consistently uh, that really stand out to me. I mean, the ones that have a really clear Sonic logo, the Intel logo, Dell. Um, Febreze is an example of a brand that uses music very methodically and, and is uh, very consistent in their use of music, a little intro music, a little music during a certain segment uh, when they're presenting the benefits, a little uh, music in, in, the, in the outro call to action, it's very consistent. So brands like that, that, that are using music's extremely consistency and then tying it into their um, vision for the brand, I think are, are really at the cutting edge of using music. So it's not necessarily the flashy use of uh, you know, music that you love, but thinking carefully about the choice of music and then consistency in terms of, of, uh, of, of how it's used. And, and then I, I can imagine like if a brand, it's a lot of measurements and testing that has been done in, in, in advance. It's not just go uh, sound shopping online. It, it's an entire process. And for brands to be able to figure out the actual emotion and thoughts of their consumers, it's like gold worth, right? However, I've done it myself. I, I'm, I think I'm more like in a traditional way because you got the ability, the chance to work with neuroscience, but in a traditional service, it's not always easy for the participants to articulate what they feel, what they think, and especially not knowing what they need and where they're going next if you ask those kind of questions. Um, and thanks to you, uh, I got the honor to visit the Nielsen Lab in London in 2018 with your ex-colleague and we got the chance to see and test an EEG as it's called in real life. So tell us what is EEG? What does it stand for? And how did you guys use that, this technique to measure what was the right and the wrong choice of music in the ads and measuring the subconscious mind of the consumers? Right, right. So uh, EEG is... Uh, called electroencephalography that's the the full name and uh you uh, use this by putting kind of a cap on the participant's head and it has in it the locations where you have these sensors and those sensors are picking up electromagnetic fields created by brain activity so it's it's amazing that our brains are actually generating electromagnetic fields due to the movement of ions down axons and so on uh, so this technique actually allows us to pick up uh, this uh, product of brain activity itself directly. It has wonderful temporal resolution. So you can get uh, down to even the millisecond uh, in terms of brain responses and, and look over very small timescales, uh, which is good for, for when you're thinking about TV ads, which are this unfolding process. Uh, uh, so you can look at you know this second or this second, and one may be doing great, and another one may be not doing so great uh, because of the content at that moment and the context. So the idea of, of using this technique in consumer neuroscience and uh, at Nielsen Consumer Neuroscience, which is what you experienced uh, in particular, uh, is to basically set people up with this, uh, show people 
advertising uh, to a TV ad with one kind of music and one group, and then another group experiences the ad with a different kind of music. And then you look at brain systems that we know are related to behavior. Uh, so we kind of know what it looks like in the brain when what you're experiencing is going to influence what you do in the future. We look for those signature responses and you can figure out, okay, uh, it is worth uh, spending a quarter of a million to get a license for this piece of music because it is way outperforming the alternative. But, but can, can you get it uh, wrong? Can the consumers, uh... Because in, in a way, you're doing this in lab, which, I, I mean, I'm a field experience, but I understand it's a lab. So you, a person comes in, and, and I remember, you look really funny in these hats, and, and you go into a room, and there's a TV, and then you put on the ads. Can a cons this person, can they fake their emotions or not? Uh, well, that, that's, the, that's the great benefit of this, is that there's really no faking. When presented with a salad and a bowl of french fries, you can tell me you want the salad when you actually would like a french fry. Uh, but the brain will say, French fry, French fry. It will tell us with, uh, with clarity uh, what's, what someone feels uh, about what we're sharing, uh, what, what that person's experiencing. And so that's the huge advantage of these kinds of techniques that are sensitive to implicit processing compared to explicit techniques which also are very useful and have been used for decades and decades, but um, they have some limitations in, in that they're not gonna give you access to this non-conscious world, uh, the, inner, the inner world of the, of the participant. And, yeah. go on. No, 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 continue. <laughs> well, it, it, it's all about data in the end. So, uh, you know, you can talk for days about how great it would be to you know, measure brain activities, but do those data line up with actual sales? And, and that's what uh, companies that have really invested in learning about consumer neuroscience have found is that actually when you do a head-to-head -head comparison, uh, being able to take brain measures is a very powerful, it has some advantages for being able to predict uh, what, how, how an ad is going to perform in market, so to speak. How do, how do you know when, when you're doing the testing in the lab and figuring out, okay, during these scenes, the brain activity is towards the results that we want them to feel and think. How do mm -hmm. they know later on then when they show this ad on TV that this person will go and purchase it in store? Yeah, well, this, this is the amazing <laughs> thing. You don't, you don't have to track that person. Uh, just by just by testing you know 20 30 people from the population if it's if the study is designed well and you're controlling the environment well and taking away noise you can take data that actually predicts what the entire population does uh, so you can there there are ways uh, and brands are very interested in doing this of determining the effect of putting an ad out because they want to know about return on investment of spending on getting that ad on air. And there are ways of actually determining how much value they got back from putting that ad, ad on air. They take those data and they compare it with the neurological data and they find that just those 20, 30 participants uh, gave us results that predicted how well an ad will perform relative to average. 
so it, it's it it suggests uh, there's a lot more that's similar about us than than we may think. Uh, we can we can learn a lot about a lot of people by looking at just a, a pretty small random sampling. I found it so fascinating. The first time I've heard on an experiment that was done like this was the Cheetos commercial, where there's a woman walking into a laundromat and the person in that she has the other woman she hasn't finished her laundry and then the, the second woman she gets upset so she takes some of cheetos and then she looks at her white laundries and then she put it in there and then they they interview in a focus group women asking them questions about you know what do you think and the most of them was like no you can't do that that's so rude and then they did the other test group that they did, they did neuroscience and that the activity in the brain, which was probably like, yeah, I would have done the same, was activated, which, which means that is also, isn't it like this social base, we, we, we don't want to say that we are mean or that we want to do certain things. So I, I found that really interesting why I got interested in, in neuroscience saying, oh, I don't want to ask questions. <laughs> I want to see what the, the body tells me, the, 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 the activities, the actual pumps in it. But, but the thing is that, okay, so today we're able to measure, um, capture implicitly, as you said, effects of music and then neuroscience the way you worked. However, we also had a discussion many times that we talked that it could be very, very, very expensive and not everybody can afford it. Mostly, of course, big brands then. And, and being in the sound field uh, myself, I would say it is challenging to find a proper affordable you know, tech tool that in real time can measure the emotional impact that you don't really have to go to lab and pay a lot of money. So based on that many years that you've been at Nielsen, how do you think we can solve this um, going forward, more like affordable technology? Uh, could AI be a solution? Yeah, that's a great, great question. Um, certainly there are, there are companies already using AI. I've, I've seen it in particular for, for eye tracking. So based on a large database of how people navigate movies, they will predict the eye tracking for a new movie. Uh, the issue with with predictive uh, approaches like that is that the number of variables that can change are are pretty much infinite. So, and then you're looking at interaction. So you can have different kinds of sound, different music uh, developments over the course of the ad, plus different kinds of visuals, every possible different angle, colors. Uh, celebrities or not, you know, they, every, everything you see on screen is creating meaning in, in this you know, 100 billion neuron brain of ours with trillions of interconnections. It's pretty hard to, to predict uh, what's going to happen uh, in the brain uh, from looking outside based on past experiences because this is a new ad. Uh, a new combination of all these variables. So uh, that's really why I guess it's it's expensive, so to speak, is because uh, to do it right, you, you want to have a setup that allows you to get reliable, trustworthy data. Now, you know, there may be ways to do it where there's a much wider margin of error. So it's uh, instead of, you know, knowing within 
uh, just a, a narrow significant difference. Uh, you might just know, you know, is it good or bad or something like that. Like maybe it is possible to to get at a rough estimate with with less data or less quality, a lower quality data. But then you know, um, it gives you less signal, of course, and less information. So the future, the future probably will move towards less expensive technology um, that's more reliable. So developing technologies that, that can really capture the signal. Uh, and then of course, you know, we have amazing information gathering tools uh, in our pockets, basically everyone, which is the phone, where there are ways to leverage the phone to collect information and then all of that maybe can be put together with with artificial intelligence. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think as far as as far as understanding implicit uh, measurements, it's a little bit hard to get get past doing a very careful study. I understand, and and also as you said, there there's so many different types of music, uh, mm -hmm. and and how do you know what kind of choice of music uh, you're gonna pick right and and in my field um, research studies at soundtracker brand we applied a lot of popular music and in in one study with a quick restaurant brand it increased sales with uh, nine plus percent however in another study popular music totally changed the brand association that i mentioned before a super brand luxury bed, bed brand were perceived less luxury by its customer which is it, it's devastating because you spend so much to be luxury and then you put play popular music and then suddenly you're not perceived the same way. However, I remember when I did the, the staff interviews, they loved the popular music because they could sing along and it, you know, it made the time uh, pass much faster than the unfamiliar music. So there was always like a challenge between, okay, is it the customers, the brands or the staff? And I know that, uh, um, from your conference that you also were talking about popular versus unfamiliar music. Could you walk us through some of your response uh, connected to what brands can choose when it comes to, should it be popular or unfamiliar? Yeah, sure, sure. So uh, that's always, that's the big uh, challenge is to figure that out. And it's, uh, I've seen examples where it really works, uh, where the, the popular music that a brand has been using you know, has developed these great associations with the brand. So when they use that music, brand recognition, the equivalent neurological equivalent of brand recognition goes way up. Uh, whereas when they use a new music, uh, you lose out on that. So it's worth investing there. I've seen other examples where the popular music didn't fare better than some unfamiliar music. Uh, uh, and then other examples, kind of like what you said, where in this case, it was a high tech brand that was very cutting edge and they tried using some very retro music that everyone loves, but it totally uh, cut off the connection between the ad and high tech and technology. It felt retro. It, it was, you know, people were thinking of, uh, you know, how things were and, decades ago whereas the brand is about the future and then the present so absolutely it's a it's a it's a challenging question i think there are, there are a couple points with regard to popular music 
what associations is that music bringing? <laughs> Are they really aligned with the brand? Uh, it's not just about using music that people love. Uh, it's about aligning the associations with the brand. Uh, and then, you know, is there a best in class alternative that could get you there uh, without having to spend on the license fee? Uh, so that's that's really where where research helps out uh, for a relatively small amount of money. Uh, you can you can figure out if it's if it's worth spending a much larger amount of money on on licensing music. It's very interesting what you say, and I've read a lot about also uh, the whole music and association. Uh, that when we listen to a lot of popular songs, it is uh, very much connected to where we grew up. When did we listen to the song? Was it a positive or negative um, uh, um, happening during that period of time? Uh, I had one person in the store that I interviewed, and the first comment was, take out that Coldplay play song. <laughs> And I said, excuse me, what? You have to take it out. Like, whenever it comes up, my day is ruined. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, you want to talk about why? She said, because that song reminds me of my divorce. Right. So, so it's yeah. really interesting. And it's very important for brands to understand that you can't just choose a song because the, the marketing team likes it or they think they can fit. It also has to be tested in terms of like, okay, what do people really associate to this song? Uh, not just like, oh, we like the melody because we, we have a lot of things that we associate with that. And then the brand has to take a, a, a solution and going, no, sorry, a decision going, okay, do we want to be associated with that? Right, exactly, exactly. And it's, it's analogous to the problem with choosing a celebrity to uh, be a brand ambassador. Uh, what kind of baggage, so to speak, what associations come with that person uh, for everyone who knows about them? And uh, when you're choosing music, it's the same thing. People are going to have experiences. And then that's the other, the other issue with popular music is if it's really popular, then, then it's very hard to develops unique associations for the brand. Ideally, with sonic branding, you hear a piece of music and it reminds you of, you know, that Cadbury ad or, or you know, it, you hear a piece of music and without thinking about it, it's triggering associations with the brand. But if it's super popular and you're hearing it, hearing it in the grocery store, on, on the radio, you play it at home, then it has no specific associations. Whereas a unique song, a new song in your brand's ad is only going to develop associations with your brand because it's being presented with your brand always when people are experiencing it. Uh, it so it's, that's, that's a consideration. It's interesting well. also because um, what are, uh, what's the one of the Kardashian sisters that is the model, Kendall? Uh, for a while, she and some of her friends, they were popping up in, in every ad as a model. And what it does is like suddenly you don't know what brand it is. It's Burberry one day, Louis Vuitton the next day, which means that it, it doesn't become something unique. You don't think of her and think about a specific brand. You just say, oh, it's, it's her. And then you don't 
you don't think about the brand and that is probably also the the challenge in in terms of just choosing something that is out there and then you it becomes lost in everything else that people are associating with that uh, particular song for example exactly exactly so you you know this person is the flavor of the month they're they're you know selling this uh, in one market they're selling this in another or even worse i've seen examples where uh, the same actor was uh, uh, being featured in in ads for one brand and then a com- and then in ads for a competitor's brand and there you're very likely to get this uh, this lack of uniqueness in terms of the brand resonance for the brand because you see that person it makes you think of the previous brand that that he or she worked with so absolutely uh it's 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 one of the it's a double-edged sword with popular music you get a lot of bang for your buck so to speak because you're going to trigger a lot of memory right off the bat uh, likely some emotional associations but it's diffused and it, 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 it may come with associations that aren't aligned with the brand and also that aren't unique to the brand. Yeah, no, it's interesting. And, and there's two industries, I would say, that have been working with music uh, in their branding very well. It's the TV commercial, and, and they've been testing it for a while now. And I would say that the film industry uh, are also very good at it. However, now the explosion of postcards and audios and, and, and radio suddenly and online videos. Uh, what would you say that you've learned that you can tell our listeners about uh, audio and radio ads under the Microsoft compared to, to TV ads? Ah, right. Yeah. So, so radio ads are quite interesting and, and have a unique potential to trigger personal memories. There's this system in the brain called the mirror system, and that is constantly modeling the behaviors, emotions, and and experiences of the people that are around you uh, as if they're your own. So what would it it be like to be hitting that hammer or picking up that object? The brain is doing that non-consciously or smiling. so the same thing happens with sound as well. So when you hear something like, you know, a door slamming or, or an instrument playing, the brain is automatically modeling the behavior that's behind that, uh, that sound. But when it's, when it's just sound, it's your own imagination. So that's unique to radio ads. Uh, when you are presenting a soundscape, uh, it's creating a very personal experience for the individual whereas of course when it's a video ad you're forcing uh, a visual context uh, that is going to have personal uh, uh, resonance in in some way but it's not purely the person's own imagination for what's happening and so that gives uh, radio a a really unique opportunity to be intimate to really be personal Uh, and that combined with the fact that you know, hearing, you can't shut off, you can always close your eyes, uh, but when you've got the radio on, you're just being fed information. And, and we know from lots of research that even when we're talking or paying attention to something else, if you're hearing sounds, you're being influenced uh, by that non-consciously. Uh, so, uh, so it's a very powerful medium for delivering uh, branding messages, absolutely. 
So how can brands work with uh, a great audio choice versus something that is not good? Well, I, I think it comes back to consistency. So uh, we just know the way the brain works is uh, that it identifies patterns and it builds these networks of association. So it makes perfect sense to use the same kinds of soundscapes online or, or on radio as you would in video. Uh, so the similar music, ideally the same music, uh, obviously sonic branding elements, uh, the voices of characters. It would just be great to have the, the look and the feel be continuous and, and consistent from uh, the TV to radio to online presence and so on. Uh, so I think that's that's a real key that uh, can be challenged to maintain because sometimes the, the team working on radio is not the team that worked on the TV ad and, and so on. So uh, and coordinating across all of the, the marketing folks can have a really big payoff for brands. And, 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 and packaging all your years that you have in uh, consumer neuroscience, uh, what are your best practices uh, for brands out there that uh, would love to either start working with audio branding or to improve their audio branding? Mm. I, I think that, you know, first and foremost, and this connects back with what we were saying earlier, have it up front in the conversation. Uh, because we may have this implicit bias towards dealing with storylines and visuals, let's recognize that and make a conscious effort to think about music from the very beginning, uh, think about what the mood is, what kind of music, what kinds of associations are important, uh, make the sonic branding uh, really central to the way you're thinking about the brand. and. I mean, this is this is happening more and more. Uh, you know, Mastercard just recently went through a real big uh, revamp of their audio branding. Visa wasn't far behind; they've they've done that. And you, you can look around. Uh, audio branding is getting a lot of attention uh, more and more, but still, I think uh, it's hard to hard to keep it front and center because of these issues we raised about the implicit nature. So I, I think that would be a big step forward. Uh, in addition to those other points I mentioned about consistency and 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 really thinking through whether you want popular music or or a new piece of music, uh, and looking at the strengths and weaknesses there as well. And then also, do invest in in testing. Uh, sometimes it doesn't have to be that more complicated than asking. 30 of your uh, online customers or stand in the store or anyway, you know, I've done small testing that even if you do a small uh, amount of uh, participants, you, you can start getting an indication what they are saying and, and not take music for granted and, and thinking that the marketing team knows the best. Uh, go out and figure out, as I say, Play the music and see how the how the people are dancing, which way they are going, which way, which direction, and which direction is it you want to take them, and then choose the music towards that. Um, if if what do you think is now um, the future of of audio branding? What what will come next in a couple of years? Let's say five to ten years. Mm. 
so I, I definitely think that this uh, movement towards towards testing is is going to take fold. Uh, so uh, you know I'm already seeing this in in terms of how you know sonic branding agencies are working with this. They're they're often thinking about how to do testing as well as part of the development process. Um, thinking of squeaky clean studios, for example, I was uh, talking with those folks about this. So it's, um, it's, it's, it's entering into the zeitgeist, so to speak, the, the idea that we, yeah, let's, let's quantify this. We know it's, it's ephemeral. It's hard to get our fingers on and we may need some, some data to help our intuitions. Uh, so that's one thing. Um, I do think that uh, it will be interesting to see if, if, artificially uh, in intelligent generated music uh, can become useful. Uh, I, I think that there's a chance there that you know, being able to describe an emotional scope for an ad uh, can then be fed into a system that creates music that fits that or that goes through a large database of music and finds music that fits that profile. That would be interesting as well. Uh, I think it's hard to get away from the value of, of composers. Uh, human composition is uh, still, in my opinion, at least uh, way ahead of the game. Uh, but some combination of composers and artificially artificial intelligence uh, probably spells the future for for sonic branding. Very interesting. And then I would like to ask you, what is pumping in your earphones today? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, so uh, I've been you know, listening, actually, um, because of my work at, at uh, uh, WavePaths, which you, you mentioned briefly, uh, I've been listening to a lot of uh, ambient music. Uh, soothing music of various kinds. I listen to Wavepaths music quite a bit uh, <laughs> as part of the process of iterative improvements there. Uh, and you, you, you've had a taste of that that we could talk about uh, later. But um, uh, so I do listen to uh, many artists uh, that are up and coming uh, in these domains of, of creating soundscapes that uh, are potentially uh, evocative in terms of healing potential, but also creating very extreme uh, differences in emotional quality. Uh, otherwise, you know, I I uh, just was listening to Oscar Peterson play, and Ray Brown, and I uh, listened to a lot of Glenn Gould. Uh, my my uh, my spouse is a, cl a, a classical pianist, so I should I mean actually most of the music I hear is her piano playing, which is Scriabin <laughs> and Brown. And, uh, Schumann. So I would say the music I listen to most is is really classical piano. So it seems that music has a, a huge uh, importance in in your life. How, how would how would you think life would be without music? Oh, that's a, that's unimaginable. It's uh, it's so central to to what life is, and ultimately, it's reflecting the the rhythms of experience and the way our bodies move through the world and our heartbeats our uh, the, the contour of breath the, the 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 walking the pace of walking and running and 
and everything we do has rhythm and then that's reflected in music and it's interwoven so it's a little hard to imagine uh taking that away from the mix <laughs> and then i would uh, want to ask the last question and that is to tell us three sounds that has positive uh emotions and memory for you and mm. three sounds that have totally the opposite that you just can't stand <laughs> okay okay i'm not very good at these kinds of things <laughs> but uh three sounds that that i love um yeah well uh you've got the the sound of your you know your your the voice of uh your beloved uh friend and partner that's uh, that's always a good one uh to start with and then um you know uh, i guess not to repeat that because you could do that for lots of different important people in your life the, the voice the timbre of voice that that is so rich and and uh, connects us with people uh, so i'd say I'll, i'll say more generally the voice uh, mm -hmm. that's a sound that's that's very powerful and moving uh, of course uh, you know I, i played the tambura uh, for you a little bit uh, that that's such a, a beautiful sound that just uh, plays on our nervous system uh, taking advantage of the way that the brain organizes sound and it perfectly aligns with uh, the way that the auditory system is set up i think there's something extraordinary beautiful about that which is an instrument that emerged from the indian classical traditions and then a third one uh well uh i guess i i'll say the saxophone because i I've always <laughs> yeah i i saw i heard a barry sax for the first time when i was about 12 and i just needed to play that in particular i've been playing alto for a, a couple of years before that but barry in particular just has this sonorous uh, richness this growly kind of quality uh bad sounds uh <laughs> uh you know sound has its place basically all all sound has its place and and sometimes uh, it can help take us to a, uh, a a mental space that we need to go to even if it's challenging but i mean it occurs to me uh, you know trains you know grinding on the rails maybe that's a good example uh what's another one uh Yeah, something like car horns, especially when uh, I can't figure out what I did wrong, you know, uh, that kind of sound. Uh, you know, the sound of, um, you know, uh, when you're at, you're finished with uh, some kind of food that you love and it's all done and you hear your spoon against the bottom of the bowl. That's always <laughs> troubling. Thank you very much, Bradley. This has been really fun. And if the audience wants to read more about your research, where can they find it? Oh, uh, sure. So uh, look me up on Google Scholar. I've got a, uh, a presence there. You can look through all, all the, uh, uh, the, the papers that I've published, book chapters and so on. And uh, otherwise, There, there's a really great study on, on uh, neuroplasticity and epigenetics and music learning. Uh, 
that you can find. Uh, it's open source. And if you look up Valproate and and uh, Absolute Pitch or Perfect Pitch and my name, you'll you'll hit that. Um, another one on on stroke recovery and and melodic intonation therapy uh, is also open source. So if, if you look up MIT and um, and TDCS, actually, that's the technique I used in my name. You'll find that. Um, everywhere. I will also link it on my website. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you so much, Jasmine. I really appreciate uh, you having me aboard. Well, that's all for today's episode of The Power of Audio, Science and AI. I'm Jasmine Moradi, and thank you very much for listening. If you like this podcast and want to follow my journey towards discovering the secrets behind the power of audio, science and AI, then make sure to never miss an episode by subscribing on my website, jasminemoradi.com, Spotify, iTunes or Google Play. I'm also working towards increasing the value of music so that artists receive the fair share of the economic value they create in our society. So make sure to spread their words to your fellow brand leaders and business network via your social media. Stay tuned for my next episode where I will speak to my new friend, Dr. Johannes Coloma Flecker, a leading voice in music thinking for personal and professional growth.